Hi, everybody, and welcome to the European VC Podcast. I am David, and I am thrilled to be here on a special one-on-one fireside chat with the Master of Chaos, Fred Destin, founding partner of Stripe. You may remember Fred from our past episodes, but if you do not or haven't listened to that yet, Stride is currently investing out of Fund 2 with a total of 220 million uh, pounds, British pounds in UM, with an established portfolio of approximately 25 companies per fund and recent investments, including Triver, Conceivable Life, TechWolf, and Hoffy, and some notable investments counting Zoopla, Pillpack, Superhuman, Linktree, Deliveroo, Secret Escapes, Daily Motion, and Integral Insights. If you're listening in and love our show, you know what to do. Drop us a review, follow the pod, and subscribe at eu.vc. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. An alliance. This, this is a union of values, of values. United and determined, we can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem, problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings, new, new beginnings. Let's start acting, 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 acting. This show is not investment advice, and the hosts of this episode may be invested in the funds and companies featured. Fred, we were meant to do this fireside chat in Dubai for the Expand North Star Conference. Unfortunately, the stars didn't align and we couldn't make that happen, which was a shame. I was personally sad about that. But we decided, well, we can't let this this opportunity pass by. And so you thought we would do this on the pod instead. Fred, welcome to the show. How are you today? Thank you so much. I'm, uh, I'm great and I'm glad to be back. So for those that don't know, Expand North Star, and it was my first time uh, in, in the region and in Dubai specifically, is a very interesting conference, and they had investors from all around um, the globe. So we had Europe represented, we had uh, US, we had Asia, we had, you know, it was really interesting to see all these different viewpoints. And so the whole concept of this, of this fireside chat with Fred was kind of give a view, start, starting off with giving a view on the market from where we stand and from specifically Fred and Stride stand. So Fred, would you give us a quick rundown of where you see the market today? And let's, let's you know, not shy away from you know giving kind of a, a macro view as well to people that might not be living and breeding venture like we are every single day uh, for sure so look i think the theme of the day is that we are we're processing um the overhang so you know i've been in venture since um 99 and i think the crisis we're in right now is probably comparable to 2002 because of its depth uh, and its length. And, you know, if you've lived through the 2008 crisis, that was a liquidity crisis, but, you know, we had the benefit in tech that we recovered within six months. You know, the iPhone came out and the whole mobile platform plays started, started uh, delivering value. And so we really didn't feel it that much. It was tough in the moment, but it was short. Whereas this one is complex and all-encompassing. And so right now, I think if you were, say, if you're a 2016 vintage fund and you had, you know, five years to bring companies to any form of liquidity window, you're probably doing okay in the sense that you've, you, you had a chance to exit some capital to show some, some decent DPI numbers. But, you know, we, we come out of a stage where we had these incredibly high graduation rates, 80% plus compared to market standard might be 50 we had fast markups between rounds. We had blitz scaling strategies based on infinite capital access. And, 
you know, by the time you get towards the end of that cycle, as I said, either you'd hit the liquidity window and good for you, you basically pass the bag on to someone else, which we can discuss whether that's right or wrong, <laughs> um, or you get risky uh, mega rounds done for your companies. And so um, if you look at the maybe the 17, 18, 19 vintages, they're more in that category, which is they get a lot of companies that get funded and extremely high valuations, raising 50 to 200 and, you know, at uh, sky high values and with huge liquidation preferences. So now we're looking, we're looking back at that and looking at, um, I think, three primary things that are happening for existing funds. So one is call them re-ratings or markdowns that are in line with public companies. So say if you look at the Bessemer Cloud Index, it came down 50 to 60%. And so you're going to naturally find that some of your more growthy companies are getting re-rated. And it's painful from a return standpoint, but it's okay because these companies are healthy. They should drive value over time. So it's going to reduce your return profile, but your asset is still performing. You then have a second category, which is are the recaps or cram downs. You know, that's when the liquidation preferences come down. Uh, the growth funds will use that either in recovery scenarios, but also will use them offensively to drive their ownerships up. And that is the kind of scenario where it's almost impossible for seed funds to recover from that. We just don't have the firepower to follow uh, in these recaps. And then the third category are segments where you have full market dislocation. So certain segments are just completely shut down for new funding. You can think about online groceries, for example, uh, as, as one of those where just nobody wants to touch the segment. Um, you know, insurance, maybe if you look at Lemonade and what happened with Luco would be in a similar category, but there's just no capital and people are kind of people so burnt that they don't want to come in. So we're, we're looking at this stock of companies inside seed funds, for example, and I think one of the issues we're faced with right now, or there are two of them on the LP side. Number one is the LPs have no confidence that the GPs are showing the true value of their portfolio. I've heard this now 20 or 30 times that managers, instead of marking their portfolios down or at least being transparent about the state of the assets, are sort of trying to play a game of let me delay the markdowns for as long as I can. And DLPs are really pissed off because they don't know what to believe in terms of what they're being shown. We had a case for one of our companies where we took it down 50% early because we could kind of see the writing on the wall. And then a number of my LPs called me and said, hey, I'm seeing these other funds that are mar have marked this position, you know, either at cost or maybe they took a 25% markdown. And we're trying to make sense of what's going on which, you know, puts us in a difficult position because we're not trying to hamstring our, our co-investors. But, you know, it's, a, it's a, an example of, I think, very differing views inside the GPs as to where these assets should be. The second thing that's a little bit complicated is that a number of LPs either forgot or have had no experience that this is a cyclical market. So the experienced LPs, you know, the harbor vests of this world who are used to investing through fund cycles, know that from time to time you're going to have a tough vintage and you kind of have to go th look through that for alpha, whereas somewhat less experienced LPs are at the moment screaming and going, hey, you promised me money back and now you know, your portfolio took a bunch of punches in the face and, and where's the cash? 
And so you're seeing people asking for DPI on quite recent vintages, you know, to even 2018, 2020, they're going, where's the DPI? And the answer is, well, you can't generate DPI that fast. And now you have this secondary craze, which is coming up, which is, look, the time to do secondaries was 2021. And now it's all the rage to talk about GPs need to learn how to generate liquidity. And the worst time in the world to sell your portfolio assets is, you know, late 2023. And so, you know, now we're again looking back in the rearview mirror, trying to optimize performance by doing exactly the wrong thing. Now, don't get me wrong. In some cases, you have to generate liquidity. So this is a, a must, not a, not a nice to have. But I think we're, we're seeing counter-cyclical strategies being deployed, which I think is just not, not the way to go. You just have to be patient, put your head down, focus on the portfolio, drive value one company at a time. I think there you're, you're hinting towards your view and... and which I would share, right? It's, it, it feels like it's a stark period, but as you said, it's, it's part of the cycles, right? And experienced people know that and recognize that. I'd love, I'd love to do like a, a, side, a side note here and ask you, because you, you painted a very, in my view, at least clear scenario, what this means for fund performance, mostly for seeds, uh, seed funds, seed VCs or seed GPs. What does this mean for founders uh, these days? What, what, what do you think the real impact will be? Do you think we will see actually some negative outcomes of the cycle right now towards founders and entrepreneurship? I don't know how to answer that question generically. What I would say is there is a lot more education and acceptance of the fact that founders need to be motivated going forward and or at least the management teams that are running the companies that may or may not be the founders. Hopefully it is the founders and that investors fully understand the need for carve-outs on lower value exits, re-incentive of the management team with cleaned up cap tables. And so my current experience is that people are a lot more mature about understanding that, you know, if you don't put a few million dollars worth of exit value on the table for a founder, you know, which is valuable years of their life they're spending trying to build value, that there's a lot more acceptance for that. The, the flip side of that is it's the oldest game in the book for an incoming investor to go ally themselves with the founders, with their cram down and we re-incentivize. Actually, I think that's healthy because there's no way around the reality of what it takes to incentivize people and build a company. But you know, we're, I, I think we're seeing quite a healthy response, at least in my limited you know, in the viewpoint I have on the market, a, a healthy response to that. What, what you described there are somewhat Let's put it, they're not, they're not simple deal dynamics. Let me put it like that, if I will. And with a, with a period where we had, you know, a lot of new bulls, whether that's new funds, whether that's new um, practitioners in the VC industry. And I, here I'm, I'm really focusing in Europe right now. Do you think, and it's a bit of a philosophical and provocative question, but do you think our stock of VCs, seed stage, early stage VCs, are ready to deal with these complex dynamics happening in their, in their portfolios in the market the way it is today? Let me answer the question indirectly. Whether or not you are ready to deal with these dynamics, the reality is these situations are unlikely to be situations when you drive a lot of value. Um, so I think that it's important to fight for every dollar. But as we know, the two, three, four, if you're lucky, best companies are going to drive 90% of your returns. And 
So I don't know that as a seed investor, your ability to deal with complex deal dynamics is necessarily going to save your ass. Uh, <laughs> I think your fundamental ability to pick category defining companies, etc., is what's going to save your ass. And so you know, rightly so, I think the LPs are very focused on what's driving value in the portfolio. And for ourselves, you know, this is where it gets tough because you think, okay, I want to keep as many shots on goal as possible. I want to keep as much optionality in the portfolio as possible. But the reality is, uh, you know, in, in markets that are this brutal, a lot of these companies are shot. Like they may be shot because your return profile on them is shot. So in other words, the, the capital structure is such that you're, you're unlikely to recover much of anything or that the businesses themselves are impaired. And so I think it's important for the GPs to just take a somewhat dispassionate look at this stuff. And this is where you move into your portfolio. You put your portfolio management hat on. And, you know, in my experience, you can have very honest conversations with founders. They, they take it quite well, which is to say, hey, look, I think the strategy is complicated. I think the company's future is impaired. We don't know what to do. And we're going to go focus our energy elsewhere. And, you know, if you ever need... If you ever need a heart-to-heart -heart conversation about your strategy, what to do with the business, I'm here. But, you know, we're going to go focus on energy on the things that actually drive value. And I think founders get that. I think there's not, nothing worse than this kind of benign neglect that happens where founders just get ignored or left aside. You might as well just have the honest, direct, truthful interaction with them. And they get it. I mean, they understand our business. You know, they're not stupid. And at least they're getting a true answer, you know, or a true representation of where you're at. That clarity, yeah, of course. So I think if we were doing this in uh, in uh, the room that we, we had planned to do initially, there were some um, less, uh, let's call them less experienced LPs in venture so that they're new to venture, they're looking at the, the asset class now. I think it's fair to say that they might be thinking, listening to this, well, maybe I'm just going to focus on like more growth stage funds and like not really... You know, <laughs> risk risk the pre-seed stage. I know that's not your view, <laughs> so I'd love I'd love to ask you. You know, how do you how do you balance things off now? Because it feels a bit stark the way we've spoken about it so far. So, as an LP, um, you both have risk intolerance, and you know, especially family offices just don't like to lose their money. And then you have, you know, depending on on your strategy, you really in theoretically invest in venture for alpha. So there is a middle-of-the-road way of thinking about this, which is to say, I'm just going to give my money to a large-scale fund um, because that feels safe, because they're big. The problem with that strategy is the large-scale funds that are really exceptional, you probably cannot get access to. You know, Index, Excel, General Catalyst. I mean, good luck. You know, they're oversubscribed. They've always been oversubscribed. You know, these are not managers that it's really easy to get into even if you spend years building a relationship i know because i used to be at excel and getting a new lp in effectively requires an existing lp to drop out for whatever reason or you know there's some small rebalancing but it's really tough to get access so then you're potentially left with managers that are middle of the road where you're really not getting paid for the illiquidity premium that you're getting and let's remember that the only thing that matters is getting into some form of quartile performance. So your job as an LP is really to go assess on what dimensions a manager is going to generate top quartile and whether that story is credible. 
And we know that individual GP performance persists over time, but fund performance, with a few exceptions, does not persist either. So you can't really rely on history. And at the moment, you know, when people are nervous or anxious, they over-index on existing numbers, history, etc., as a as a as a sign of safety. But you know, it, the numbers historically tells you that may not work, or at least it's not very predictive. So I think the flight to safety in venture is a is a dangerous way to think. You actually, if you look at early stage portfolios, for example, they're not that easy to lose money on. It's interesting because there's kind of a misconception that at the company, individual company level, these bets are highly risky. So you will have LPs to say, oh, 30% of your portfolio went bust, you're doing a bad job. Whereas in reality, if you're taking enough risk at an individual company level, you're expecting your loss ratio to be relatively high. But at a portfolio level, you know, if the portfolios are built with discipline, you're unlikely to lose money. You could have lackluster returns, but, you know, to really lose money in venture if you're disciplined, unless, again, you get a terrible down cycle. But in a normal, quote-unquote, market environment, you know, it's not that easy to, to, be, uh, to be losing money for your investors. It takes, it takes a special kind of skill, I think. I think I can't remember, and I apologize for that, but I can't remember neither the guest nor the data source, but we had a guest recently sharing like a counterintuitive learning they, they had when they started in venture was, and they quoted some kind of, of data source that I can't remember. It was like the, the portfolios with biggest write-offs or highest write levels of write-off also tend to have higher, higher returns or potential for returns, which is very much what you're saying, right? It's not, it's not that you have 30%, 40, 50% of the companies going bust within the first three, four to five years that you're not making money. Yeah, exactly. Mapping or stack ranking funds based on the loss ratio is completely irrelevant. And if you're taking big enough bets, your loss ratio should be higher than if you're investing in yeah. relatively safe, say, you know, SaaS analytics companies where, you know, you're not going to drop that many balls, but the likelihood that you generate north of 2x net is pretty low, right? Because you've, yeah, just, yeah, yeah. you've just compressed your risk profile. So we're, we're kind of, we're, we're touching on this lightly, like portfolio, you know, different strategies. So I'd love, I'd love to ask you, and, and here I'm asking you, Fred, investor, not you, Fred from Stride. <laughs> How do you think about the different venture st strategies that one can employ and should employ? And maybe I'll ask a, a, a pre-question to that question is, can, can, do you believe that it's possible to time the market? General opinion tells us no. Uh, but as you think of your your strategy as an investor, that's definitely something that comes into play. Uh, sure. So let's talk about venture strategies first. Um, I think the purest form of venture ends up and remains a founder entering into partnership with a partner somewhere and they collectively deciding they're going to go build a great business. That at the end of the day, whatever we say about venture being shit or great or whatever, there, there is something quite pure about that, which is, I believe in you as a founder and together we're going to go build something wonderful. In that model, um, I think that model is very hard to scale because it's highly dependent on the quality of the GPs and you need this kind of multifaceted skill set. This is where you'll find Benchmark, USB, etc., which are very much the role models for how, how I try to work, which is this boutique one-on-one -on -one engaged approach 
and where you make no apologies and you say, you know what, I am your partner in building this company. And that is the purest model. And then the problem with that is there's too many venture capitalists, and I'm not trying to generalize, but there are too many venture capitalists who don't have a view about the world that is particularly original, who don't know how to engage with founders, et cetera, et cetera, which is why venture gets a bad rap because you get a nondescript person on your board who's sort of a money manager and has no particular view about your company, the world, you as a founder, et cetera, and just, you know, and, and it's a sort of a, a pretty mediocre experience. But done well, it's beautiful. Then you look at venture strategies that I think are differentiated and work well, and I'm just going to throw a few examples. I mean, the canonical example of ghost in the machine would be YC, right? Let me build a network of experienced founders and operators. Then I build a selection method, and then I let the network do its work. I almost don't need to be there in terms of selection. And I've created such a brand and such a community around myself that you know it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling uh, center of excellence. You could argue in Europe that Seedcamp is similar. You probably have five, 600 companies in portfolio. The network itself feeds you know, input, insights, and community with the founders. And, you know, that's quite nice. They live at pre-seed. They can write tons of checks, highly diversified. You kind of get what the value prop is very clearly. I really like, like my form, former partner, Harry, I think has built something similar where he can't necessarily be the lead investor because of the way he operates. But what he's selling is very clear. You get media exposure on the front end, you know, massive thought leadership machine. And then you get his network or the network of his network with the vertical funds he's doing. But that's a pure network asset. In other words, don't ask me to do any work with you. I'm not going to sit down for half a day and go through a strategy. But you want access to Collison or you want access to anybody. I can provide that to you in under 48 hours. I mean, it's a very clean value prop. So I think these strategies, so that's more of a follower strategy. You're going to work, you know, you're going to follow the tier ones into the deals that they do. But I mean, it's pretty, um, it's pretty beautiful. And I think it's pretty, it's pretty clean. I like, I think the strong thematic approaches are powerful, provided you get some kind of virtuous circle. Um, so Visionaries in Berlin, I think is doing a great job because their LPs are industrial families. They're focused on B2B SaaS. They're talking about digitization of existing industries. The investment strategy is not that novel, but you know the ecosystem they built is powerful, right? So that's very consistent and coherent, and I think that's great. I also like people like 50 Years on the West Coast, and you know because they're like, hey, we're going to precede people solving humanity's big problems, and let's build a an ecosystem of visionaries around that again with a very clear very clear value prop high velocity investing so these are these are thematic examples that i like and then you go into the operational support uh, vcs now i think most platform services are pretty average because you know why because they're hard to do well you have to put real resources and intent behind it but if you look at Insight, for example, I have, I have uh, the example of two companies I worked with with Insight. So one is Recorded Future and the other one is Sedna here in Europe. They, Insight is kinda has two portfolios. There is the tactical investment portfolio. So they'll put 30 million into a company, minority ownership, and then they have the more strategic portfolio. So they double down in company and then they start deploying these operational support teams. I think they're 300 people strong. 
And I think that the people in that organization are world-class at sales, organization design and leadership, like whatever segment you want to choose. And so they're going to roll out these incredibly experienced operators into your company and really help you design playbooks and operationalize better the way you work. I mean, I have to say, having seen this in action, it is really powerful, done well, and it's quite transformational to companies that need to move from my stage to proper scaling, right? This kind of 30 to 500 million in revenues, which, you know, to be honest, I know about, but I get so bored by it that, you know, for me as a VC, if I'm on the board and we're now talking about scaling the sales force from 20 to 100 and sales incentive programs, et cetera, like, I mean, I'm just, I'm starting to, to phase out completely. So great partners. And I think are very powerful models. And if you have to compete with inside head to head, and they start telling you what the playbook's going to be, what the what benchmarking they can do pre-investment, and how they're going to help you. I mean, these are quite—they're really a compelling investor, and definitely one of one of my go-to's. So, you, you know, there's as many venture strategies almost as there are funds, but I think there's some canonical examples like that. And the question for the GPs and for LPs is like, are you playing in your natural underwriting territory? Are you playing the game you're best at? I love deep work on product, strategy, people, branding, narrative. So does Gabby. And so we are quite naturally suited at the boutique model. And in fact, most of our work happens outside the board meeting. Like we will do three-hour workshops or full-day workshops where we go deep dive on a topic. And I have no problem saying that we do move the needle, not with all our companies, but with some of our companies, I think the work we do helps our founders move the needle. And, I, and you know, so there's this notion of VC value add, which is the, the most overused term on the planet. But if you look at where people are within their zone of excellence or their zone of genius or their zone of competence, I think they do actually help. And I think founders will say, hey, you know, if you speak to the PillPack founders, they'll say, hey, there are a few moments, not all the time, but there are a few moments in the company's life where you know, we shifted our strategy or we moved the needle, our ambition or something that helped us execute better. So I think I live for these moments, which is when is the insertion point where you have something meaningful to say or to contribute. And the rest of the time, you're just let founders run their shit. I like that a lot. Um, from an LP perspective here, and, and it's always tough to, to speak from that perspective because the last thing we want to do is to, to be giving out advice or whatever, right? But, but from your worldview or viewpoint, do you see trade-offs between, because, you know, there's different models and there's different portfolio models as well, right? And they, they coexist, right? So it's like a diagram of search, right? In the sense that you can have very different models that lead to concentrated portfolios or you can have very different models leading to very diversified and wide, wide portfolios. And so from, from an LP perspective, specifically on this topic of, of portfolio, I'd love to ask you, uh, what are your views on the trade-offs? And the reason I ask is because you know, I myself, I've done a couple of angel investments in funds and I have these very early stage incubator-like huge portfolios, right? Uh, and also, but also the very kind of, you know, synthetic bio-focused fund, like super, super nerdy, super geeky, like very much doing less bets, low, much more deep work in, in, in picking and, and supporting and selecting, et cetera. And there's this, I think there's this kind of, um, I don't know, opinion in the market that everything that has a diversified portfolio is spray and pray, <laughs> which 
I don't really agree with it. I'd love to hear your your thoughts on the trade-offs between these two these two archetypes. Let's put it like that. Venture math, without a doubt, supports what you might call as a sprint prey. So actually, if you're evidence-based, there is no question that more diversification tends to play well in venture land. So theoretically, the, it depends a little bit on the variance you want about potential outcomes and the security, the certainty of where your multiple is going to be. And that's where the geeks start geeking out on doing the Monte Carlo simulations. But yeah, actually, so, so based on historical data, you know, you actually continue to benefit from diversification almost infinitely, which is unusual and is different from other financial yeah. instruments. So you could go to a thousand companies, you keep driving your expected return up, which is unusual, but of course you re you reduce the variance of the outcome. Yeah. But if you want to do two point, I forget what the number is, two point three x net, you invest in a thousand companies, and you know, maybe the optimal number is somewhere around 150. So if you look purely at venture math, people who knock, spray, and pray don't understand the nature of fat tail returns, you know, in the kind of world we live in. However, that's not the whole story because you also have a, you know, you need a value prop to founders that makes sense because otherwise you're going to end up in a very adverse selection uh, phenomena or you're going to end up, a lot of the, large-scale incubators where I'm concerned is they engineer companies out of nothing with people who aren't naturally founders, who haven't spent the hard yards finding the idea that's actually worth backing. So even though you're not going to find the comfort in numbers, if you're, if you're kind of engineering companies out of nowhere and just giving people free money to try to be entrepreneurs, that's not going to work either. But in any event, the more, you know, when you look at the benefits of diversification, you get about 85% of them by the time you get to 25 companies, which is why most people land on that number, because it's diversified enough, but you still have time to be a lead investor, be present, be at the board, do good governance and all, the, all that other shit. So then you get into, do you believe in picking? And, you know, <laughs> do you believe in picking is a vexing question. And I think people think about it slightly the wrong way because you're actually not trying to determine a winner. That's the wrong way to think about picking because we cannot determine who's going to win. What we can do, though, is we can look at whether we're putting the right kind of risk, the right kind of risk return trade-offs in the portfolio. This is where discipline comes in, which is, you know, are we putting the type of return profile that we need to be putting in so that on a whatever level of diversification we've chosen, we've put enough shots on goal for things that are multiple fund returners. That's what you're trying to do. You're not trying to determine from the outset whether every one of your companies is going to win, right? We'd all be Warren Buffett if that was possible. <laughs> There's a misconception there. Yeah, no, but what you're saying is, is, is in other words, is, is what we're doing is, is can we as, as a team or as an investor see an outcome that is big enough for it to justify the level of risk that we know that is inherently here. So we can see this making enough money for it to grant whatever risk uh, in our model exists with this investment. Correct. And then the risk type you take is also important because there are some risks you cannot mitigate. So for example, getting market timing seriously wrong as a seed fund is death. Because even if the company ends up doing great, if you have to carry it through multiple rounds before the market's ready, I mean, you, you can't recover from that. Very often you see portfolios go wrong where systematically they're at the mercy of a complex value chain, 
or a regulatory environment that's very unpredictable. So back in the day, the days of wireless semiconductors, when that was all the rage, a lot of companies ended up going bust because the dependencies on every actor in the value chain were so high that you weren't in control of your own destiny. And so when the market turned and giants emerged, et cetera, like these portfolios got cremated. And so that's the type of systemic risk you're putting in your portfolio that you, you don't quite see or that you have to be cognizant of because it's... Um, Let's say that there is a diversification desire. There's also probably decorrelation, which is are the assets in your portfolio correlated to each other? They might, you might have a diversified portfolio, but if everything's in the same segment with the same kind of risk type, you know, you've kind of loaded up the boat on the risk you're taking. So I think decorrelation is also quite attractive. What do you, Fred, uh, identify as, let's call it a thesis-driven investor? Do you identify as that or not at all? Whether we are a thesis-driven investor requires actually a complex answer. Because we're at seed, the more we focus on thematics, the more we tend to, to converge back to things that are obvious. So, you know, if you're a Series B investor, you can absolutely be thematic and you should. When you're at seed, um, we're unlikely to predict the future better than founders will. So founders typically are better than we are at identifying white spaces that we've never thought about. And so a little bit like Founders Fund in the US, we try to be like a blank slate and say, please come and surprise us with shit we've never thought about. And in fact, our job is to be mentally plastic so that we can look at either things we've never seen or things that have never worked in the past, but actually will work now. Because you know, the other thing is like how you over-index on pattern recognition. You're going, like, well, this got tried five times before. But then there is always a time and a reason why now is the right time for an idea that's not worked before. And so I think it, it, this is really where this beginner mindset comes in, which is I'm going to assume I know nothing and be curious and ask all the stupid questions and kind of think from first principles back up. And so in that sense, I think of myself certainly as anti-thematic, which is... I'm open to anything as long as from a first principles basis, I can get my head around why it's attractive for the kind of deal that we try to do. Now, thematics are helpful because you, they could carry you for a year or two. You go deep into a sector, you develop a lot of expertise, and that can help. Remember, we are focused on London as our core hub. So we decided to go geo-focused. If you're going to be a, fint a global fintech investor and you're building the network and the expertise and the people, et cetera, I love that too as a strategy. Um, I think it's not the one we pursued, but I think it's highly valid, you know. Just to shine a bit of limelight here on Stride specifically. So if you're anti-thesis anti driven, which I like, there's there's a fine line of also how do you how do you communicate with your LPs? Because the beauty of, of saying we invest in these sectors is that it's super easy to understand and it looks great in a, in a deck and everyone knows what you're doing. And, and then you say, we only do this, we don't do that. So it's very easy to, to understand and, and the human being loves simplicity, right? <laughs> when you say you're anti-thesis driven, you're kind of saying the opposite. You're saying, well, we're here to be wowed. So come wow me, <laughs> right? Uh, but how, how do you balance also, do you do like drug development deals? Uh, is that something that you'd be willing to do? Like where, where, do you, where do you define the limit? So first of all, the hardest thing. So I like, again, let me back stuff that makes a ton of money. You know, that scales adventure scale. And, you know, that has a positive impact on the world in some shape or form. 
but you know, I like a bit like founders friend. I'm like, I will fund absolutely anything that I think has the kind of potential we're looking for. And it is the hardest part of my conversation with LPs, which is like, well, what are you about now? There is a bunch of things we don't do because the other cardinal rule I have is don't invest in things you don't understand, which sounds counterintuitive, but uh, I don't think it is. So we definitely don't touch biotech. Neither do we touch tech bio because when you dig into tech bio, for me, everybody says, oh, they're AI computational platforms. But you know what? Before you know it, you're developing targets for specific conditions and you're back in an FDA approval process and you're like, oh shit, I kind of landed in biotech. How did I get into doing this? Tech bio. <laughs> you know, the vast majority of projects. So don't touch that. We don't touch climate. We don't touch energy. We don't touch quantum. Uh, we actually exclude cybersecurity. We really don't touch analytics. So we have a lot of exclusion areas, either because we don't know anything, we don't know enough about them. Energy would be a good example. Or because we think there's some form of uncapped upside. Like we look, we look at 100 analytics companies a year. We almost never touch them because we think they're, they're really difficult to scale to the kind of outcomes that we need. And on top of that, you're likely to get your ass handed to you by a West Coast company that's going to be some or Israeli company that's going to absolutely kill you. So they're tough, uh, for me, a tough segment to invest in out of Europe. So everything we do is focused on humans. And so it's like, how do we reinvent or rethink the core services that we use as humans. So it could be work, play, finances, uh, you know, it's how we interact with each other at work in our personal life. And so actually, if you think about it, we're not, we, we don't invest in everything. We're like, how do humans interact with their core services mediated through technology and software is a tool for generating new experiences effectively. You know, this is where we drop back into design, the primacy of product uh, and so on and so forth. So, when you boil it down between a geo-focus and the fact that we focus on humans, you know, it's not like we invest in everything. Now, within that, I do articulate thesis to LPs because it's kind of how they think about the world and they want to put you in a box. It is a little bit of a construct, if I'm completely honest, which is it's not that like we're sort of retrofitting the portfolio to fit certain themes, you know, future of work, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, OVCs effectively say the same shit. And what passes for investment strategy very often for me is quite mundane, you know, uh, to say we invest in mental health. I'm like, okay, uh, we invest in future of work. I'm like, what the fuck does that mean? You know, so that's not an investment strategy for me. That's a high level thematic. And the more you try to go into defining precisely what's driving you, you can look at the big wave drivers, you know, workflow automation augmented by AI. And you say, well, that's a thematic, okay. So that gets a little bit more precise. But, you know, this is where the founders surprise us because they, they work in, in the liminal space between the themes. They come up with shit you've never thought of. And that's the joy of doing my work. And so, I, in a way, I kind of refuse to be overly thematic because I think we'd just be missing out. Where do you stand on the... And I, I totally agree with what you're saying about the buckets. I think it's... And when I, you know, it's kind of a learning of mine. And I think there's a lot of this tendency to think of as an LP, think of, you know, this is my whatever geo bucket or whatever sector bucket, and then nothing adds up, right? I'm starting to see that playing out. I've done my first LP ticket two years ago. So we have, we're starting to see, you know, the, the underlying portfolio kind of building up. And it's like, 
it's it, it doesn't match anything I could have predicted. By the way, I I, I could have kind of I don't know classified or categorized the, the GPs we backed. It's it's so random, right? And 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 when you have wide portfolios, it just ten x is that that randomness. But the question was a very different one. So you, you talked about human human interactions, the way we work, the way we play, the way we interact with each other, the way we interact with with businesses. Where do you stand on the B two B B two C spectrum? I would say B2C in general has suffered in particular from a degradation of channels to market that has been so marked and so brutal that, you know, your acquisition strategies have become way more complicated. And it is such an important part of building B2C companies that, you know, if you can't get CAC under control, if you can't scale into channels, et cetera, like it's just exponentially hard. And I think a big reason why you see fewer companies getting funded is because that's the case. And so there are some decent product companies being built in anything from pet food to self-care. You know, most of them end up going through retail. Now, if you're building a hair loss product that's subscription-based for men and you're you know, annual revenue per user is 200 bucks and you're making 50% margin on your products. I mean, you can absolutely build a business on that. So you're still going to find segments where high subscription value, et cetera. Like you can absolutely go DTC on that thing and, and, and nail it. But everything else, I think the channels have become hard. And so they're just unbelievably difficult to scale, especially because the only way to really reduce costs typically is to build brand. And to build brand, you have to go above the line. And say in the UK, if you wanted to build a national brand, it's probably 10 million pounds a year to sustain, you know. And so that's like, that goes out the door first because otherwise you can't get your CACs down. And so, you know, in capital constrained environments where paybacks are long, et cetera, that's it's sort of a tough game. So I think DTC suffers from that problem or B2C in general. You know, it's very hard to generalize because what my suspicion is there's some great B2C businesses being built. And in three years' time, we're going to go, oh, shit, look at that, look at that, look at that. Because <laughs> whenever, whenever people think it's the end of history, founders surprise you with their ingenuity, you know, and, and what they come up with. So B2B SaaS, I think, is running into an interesting era because AI changes the game in both good ways and bad ways. Where it gets tougher for startups is that the internal adoption of AI tools is orders of magnitude easier than anything else we've ever seen. So whether you're an enterprise and you want to deploy AI internally in no-code environments or with custom workflows, or whether you're an incumbent and you're implementing a copilot or whatever it may be, you know, you're seeing the response rates of people to adopting AI to be much faster than anything else we've seen. So in the past, you would have these DNA evolutionary curves, which is, oh, we're on a new platform. It's called mobile. Or in security was the case, right? Every two years, you get a new security company that's on, on the latest kind of evolutionary curve. Now it's different because the coding environments are pretty stable. We haven't had new languages come in. We don't really have new platforms that have come in. I mean, all the stack, everybody's on the same freaking stack. You know, it's like everybody's on Node and React. And, you know, so you know, J JavaScript is one and, and C Sharp and Python. And, and, you know, that's been very stable for a while, which means now we have for the first time this stable stack, better APIs, no code environments. And so I think that changes the game for a number of B2B SaaS companies. And one of my concerns is, 
we are seeing a lot of what I would call marginal innovation or incremental innovation companies come through. And, you know, how many AI-powered sales automation businesses do we need to see? And, you know, or people go into a specific vertical and they say, well, hang on a minute, we're building a knowledge graph, uh, you know, so it's not just an LLM layer or a co-pilot. We have our own knowledge graph, but, you know, it may not be that powerful. And so it's concerning. I think, it, I think there's a real question of how many super high upside pure SaaS companies we can still generate because we are running a little bit out of road. Now, industrialization of overlooked segments, quote-unquote boring industries, I think there's a lot to do. I think industrial environments, there's a lot to do. Sensors, real-time sensing, predictive failure, like all that stuff, you know, optimization. So I've no doubt that there's a lot of opportunities left, but I do think that your mainstream SaaS investing, for me at least, yeah, I see fewer and fewer transformational ideas and then I see the incumbents, if you look at Intercom or Gong or people like that, I mean, Intercom was fast in terms of adopting AI. You know, within weeks, the CEO had put three squads on it, three squads on it. Within three months, they had an internal tool working. Within six months, they were live in market with a fully fledged commercial rollout of their tool, which is called Fin. And, you know, I mean, that's wow. You know, for a large company like that, from start to finish, to be out with a fully functioning GA product in six months on a new technology. It's like, gee. So I think the, the game is changing there. And I'd be, I'm a little bit scratching my head sometimes as to exactly <laughs> where, the, where the angles are. So what, if you look at what we've done in AI, there are people who are quite orthogonal or doing fundamentally hard things. So we backed a company that's trying to mix a knowledge graph with reinforcement learning with LLMs. And, you know, the way which effectively is a way to construct complex long range strategies. I mean, that's like generally hard from an engineering standpoint. And there's something quite unique about it. And I think that has the, you know, there's a substrate there to do something special. But if you don't see that, you know, I'm a little bit nervous about this. Again, these obvious themes that we're just all pursuing the same shit. And then you're going to have 10 venture back companies fighting each other on how good they are at sales, you know. So Fred, we're, we're almost out of time and I want to bring us back to where we started, which is where's the market at today and wrap up with asking you probably uh, a funny question or interesting question of what, what are, you know, given the way things are today, what are you excited about? What do you find yourself getting, getting excited about when you think about the coming months or, or years? At the moment, I have to be honest that I'm in a, I'm very much in a kind of pendulum between excitement and concern. And it is, it is difficult for me to look at the state of the world in general between erosion of democracy, mental health crisis, climate, Ukraine and Israel, and to not take some form of pause and to say, like, where the fuck are we going as a species? And... Of course, progress has helped us get out of poverty, etc. But I think, you know, I heard someone the other day describe humans as, you know, we, we're behaving like parasites at the scale of our planet. And I think there's something to that. So I would say that at the moment, I'm trying to sit with that and think about what is our impact and our responsibility. And what I'm excited about is I think there is an increased level of realization that we need to reintroduce humans at the center of what we do, community, connection, 
relating. And that what started as a little trickle is starting to be more of a movement. And I think it's showing up in a bunch of places. It's like there's a, you know, whilst at the same time we see this polarization around the Israel-Palestine conflict, but I'm also seeing an undercurrent of people realizing the power of community, learning from the elders, you know, just kind of understanding the natural cycles of the earth, etc. And so I, I see this kind of, I can't say I'm extremely positive right now, but I also see this change in uh, in kind of awareness and consciousness. And I see it a lot in the founders that we back, which is, you know, there's such a trope now. You see somebody out of the West Coast and they're like, we are on a mission to improve the world. And half the time it's complete bullshit, right? It's just something they say. But now I'm seeing this very much in the younger generation, like it's quite deep in their system that they are thinking of their responsibility, their role, their impact at quite a deeper level than my generation did. My generation was the fucking 90s and, you know, American psycho, right? I grew up on American psycho style uh, environments where it was all about the money and, you know, finance and consulting and all that crap. And so that I'm quite excited about to see this, I think, just increased level of awareness of where we're at as a species, what we're doing to each other and to our planet and kind of what we should do about it. So it feels a bit like a tipping point there. I'm kind of somewhat hopeful that that takes more amplitude. So uh, I'm going to ask a follow-up question to that, and it's a bit personal, so we can cut this. Are you religious, Fred? Uh, And when you're talking about that, how, how does that come into play? And you might have a religion, you might be agnostic in the sense that you recognize a deity or atheist where you don't really believe in anything besides the human being? So to your question as to whether I'm religious, I'll start by saying that I am concerned about religions, particularly in the environment we're in, as a tool of power, influence, and politics. I think that if religion is a way to the spiritual and asking ourselves the great questions of our existence, it's a beautiful thing. And, you know, there is a whether you look at the Catholic tradition with the Gnostics and the great thinkers all the way to the East is the most obvious example. All religions have deep, beautiful thinkers that consider the human experience in a way that's quite profound. Uh, religion today is the big challenge of our age, right? We probably have 150 million radicalized you know, individuals on the planet who are intent on destroying another 10 million. I mean, this is kind of a big geopolitical problem that is, I don't think it's particularly helpful right now. So my personal view is I'm deeply interested in the nature of the human experience and the sort of profound mystery of the human experience and the transcendence sometimes of our, you know, of our own death, right? Which is fundamentally what this is all about, which is, you know, what is this weird construct where we're thinking bipeds who go from birth to death and death is the only known certainty and you know through that we go through pain and heartache and growth and joy and all that stuff and and what is the transcendence the transcendence in that experience right and um that i find fascinating whether you explore it through religion or through mysticism or through meditation i'm like i'm game i think that is what that it is what unites us is the kind of wondering about the beauty and heartache of what it means to be human. I am David, the LP Syndicate Lead. Thank you so much for tuning in today and can't wait to see you all out there.